Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today, we'll be talking with Jenny Shuwazuka, author of Biotech Borders, Trans-Pacific Plants, and Intersect Migrations and the Rise of Anti-Asian Racism in America, 1890 to 1950. And if I mispronounce your name, please do correct me. Yes, Jeannie Shinozuka. 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 Thank you. I wonder if you could begin by saying a little about yourself and how you became interested in this project. Uh, yes, um, uh, it's a question that I that I do get asked often, and I enjoy retelling the story of how initially it started off as a public health project when I was a graduate student at the University of Minnesota uh, in the Twin Cities. And, um, you know, initially I was looking for all all kinds of public health uh, archival materials. But um, as I started to dig in the archives, you know, I was at the Huntington Library in particular, and as I was looking at their their public health uh, scrapbooks, they had they had some newly acquired uh, materials in medicine in the history of medicine at the Huntington Library. And so I was looking at some scrapbooks that a San Francisco public health official had put together. You know where uh, I think he had maybe he had his assistant. It's probably his assistant who had clipped together some newspaper cuttings, uh, newspaper articles, and. As I was looking at it, I noticed that there, you know, amongst articles on bubonic plague, um, you know, there was a bubonic plague outbreak in San Francisco, uh, that sort of thing, you know, fears of Asiatic cholera, all kinds of things like that. Uh, but in, in, in between all of that was an article on the cherry trees. And so it really stood out to me because my initial reaction was that, um, you know, this doesn't belong here. Why, why did this, this health official put this here? Uh, what does this have to do with, with um, health and medicine? So initially I thought to myself, you know, I, I should just dismiss it. You know, I should just write it off. Uh, it has nothing to do with the project. It's, it's, you know, it's not even central to the project. But at the same time, I was reading an article by Philip Pauly, you know, the historian of science, Philip Pauly, where he talked about the menace and the beauty of the Japanese cherry trees um, and talked about how there is a deeper history to Japanese cherry trees as an introduced species in the United States. And um, he raised some some really um surprising issues to me where he's linking clearly he's linking um public health uh, to the environment and so that to me um was the start of the project um, the start of what be- eventually became the book project now tell the audience about the history of the cherry trees well um a lot of people assume that uh, the 1912, um, 1912 is the date that the Japanese cherry trees uh, were planted uh, along the Tidal Basin in Washington, D.C. Few, very, very few people that I've talked to know that, in fact, in 1910, 
2,000 uh, Japanese cherry trees were sent um, were sent from the city of Tokyo uh, to be uh, planted in um, you know it, along the tidal basin in Washington D.C. Uh, however, those those first 2,000 cherry trees were uh, found to be infested. They had all kinds of insects and nematodes. Um, and the then acting chief of the Bureau of Entomology, um, this is within the uh, United States Department of Agriculture, um, his name was Charles Marlatt. He was pointing to, you know, look at all the scale, the crown gall, boars, you know, um, all kinds of a whole host of dangerous insects that had clearly had infested um, these, these first uh, cherry trees. And he told, you know, he recommended um, to uh, President William Howard Toft, he said to him, uh, you know, he recommended that they be destroyed. And so what happened was that they were burned. And most people don't know that, uh, that they were, in fact, destroyed. And so Japan then thought to, you know, thought to itself, it said, well, you know, we should send more, you know, um, try to see if we could, you know, re you know, we send some more um, as a gesture of friendship. And so there were about a little bit over 3,000. But before they sent it, they carefully inspected it and um, made ensure that it was free of any, you know, any insects, um, any nematodes or anything like that. And those are the ones that were eventually planted um, along the tidal basin. You talk a lot about the environmental protections and the mixture of xenophobia. Can you explain that to us? Well, um, oftentimes, um, you know, when people think of preservation, it's viewed as something that is very positive, you know, that we have all these conservation movements and, you know, and I don't, I don't try to negate that they, um, they have, um, you know, that they could have very beneficial aspects to them. However, there's this darker history of where, um, you know, where there were concerns over um, racial purity, about conserving racial purity, these, these ideas that are rooted in biology um, so, for example, there there are concerns over preserving Native uh, American chestnuts uh, due to the the chestnut blight that was accidentally imported. Um, you know, believed to be imported maybe sometime around 1904, the very very early 20th century, and this happened in the New York area. Um, and within a few years, chestnut blight had spread very rapidly um, along, you know, throughout much of New York, along New Jersey and Connecticut. And today, the chestnut blight still persists. In fact, uh, I believe that um, plant scientists would argue that there is no native chestnut here in the U.S. that is not infected by chestnut blight. Um, but it doesn't, you know, the, the interesting thing about chestnut blight is it doesn't outright kill the tree. Um, it just stunts its growth. It prevents it from reproducing. 
So it becomes what I would call um, functionally extinct. So maybe not quite extinct, but functionally extinct um, because it cannot really mature. And so scientists, you know, they routinely connected native species extinction to things like race suicide, you know, fears of race suicide um, and a, a presumed attack on white Americans. Um, another example would be um, Nazism. During World War II, uh, the Nazis advocated for a sort of a pure or native garden movement. Um, and that was a, that fit in within their their larger goals um, of of again of racial purity. Um, and so all these these um, biological invasions that I write about, San Jose scale, chestnut canker, citrus canker, the Japanese beetle, they all sort of embodied a kind of fear of Asian Asian invasions um, and a, an attack on the native environment. Were the Japanese unfairly blamed for importating plant disease? Well, this is a really good question, and I, I appreciated that you asked this. Um, it's, a, it's a hard question. I appreciate it. Um, I would argue that there are two sides of this coin, because on the one hand, um, the U.S. was seeking to you know, open up Asia to trade, right? And that, that was one of the reasons why they had, you know, they had sent Matthew Perry, um, they sent these um, explorers abroad because they wanted to open up Asia to trade. Um, however, on the other side of this, this, this increasing contact and trade includes the, um, the accidental importation of injurious insects and plant, you know, deadly plant diseases. So it's very difficult, you know, because they wanted, there's this demand and desire for, for Asian exotics, um, ornamentals, as well as, you know, economically useful plants like bamboo. But along with that came injurious insects, you know, deadly plant diseases. And I would also argue here that, um, Asian biological invasions were, in fact, racialized um, differently um, and more extensively compared to their European counterparts. Um, and, you know, that shows in, in newspapers, in the media. Tell us about the San Jose scale. Well, the San Jose scale is considered, you know, um, according to my research, considered to be um, the first major um, Asian biological invasion. Um, John Henry Comstock, he was an entomologist. He uh, discovered on some fruit orchards in uh, Santa Clara Valley. Um, this is around 1880. And he identified described um, the San Jose scale. And then within maybe a decade and a half, um, San Jose scale was already discovered on the East Coast in Charlottesville, Virginia. Um, so it had spread quite rapidly um, 
across the U.S. And the 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 fear of San Jose scale is that it um, easily it could easily consume a wide variety of fruit, you know, apples, peaches, pears, berries, um, um, nut bearing trees, ornamentals of all kinds, which then enabled it to spread widely across the U.S. It didn't, you know, unlike previous invasions, it did not limit its um, the kinds of foods that it would consume. And its popular name became pernicious scale. Um, and so this, this came from uh, the scientific name, which is, which is rather difficult to pronounce, quadraspioditis perniciosis. So the perniciosis implies that this is, in fact, pernicious scale. That's how it got its popular name, pernicious scale. And this scale, um, it instigated all kinds of debate and discussion about its origins because U.S. entomologists insisted that it came from, initially they insisted that it came from Japan. And Japanese entomologists argued, on the other hand, that um, no, (laughs) the U.S. was the one who accidentally imported it to us, not the other way around. Um, And the conclusion was that, you know, according to um, U.S., you know, USDA officials is that, oh, uh, well, we think China um, accidentally import gave it to us. Um, But what it shows is that there there um, there's there's so much debate um, about the origins of this insect um, that the science behind um, behind these these invasions, it's it's not objective and it's constantly changing um, based on things like in- investigations and new evidence that's being produced. Um, and the scale, um, what a lot of people don't realize is the scale, it, it in fact, it triggered a whole host of quarantines um, worldwide on a global, on a global level. Um, you know, countries like Germany um, and Canada, if scale was discovered in shipments from the United States, for example, they would then quarantine um, those imports into their country. You talked a lot about Leland Howard. Who was he and what was his mission in regards to plants? So Leland Howard, um, he was the chief of the Bureau of Entomology for quite some time. Um, from the late 19th century up to uh, about 1927. So um, about three decades, he was uh, chief of the Bureau of Entomology. Uh, and um his interest included medical entomology as well as biological control. And it was under his tenure that the USDA, um, uh, especially, you know, the, um, the Bureau of Entomology in particular, that it really extended and expanded its powers um, in terms of the funding that they received in terms of, you know, their ability to um, regulate imports and that sort of thing, Um, the requirement of plant inspection, those all occurred under um, 
under the tenure of Howard. Um, and I contrast him a bit to Charles Marlatt, who um, eventually became acting director and then Bureau of, the, the, of, the, of Entomology later on. Um, Howard was more willing to use biological control um, over chemical control, although he did at times use chemical control. You know, he, he did not um, dismiss the use of pesticides entirely. But biological control um, was something that he appeared more willing to experiment with, you know, um, uh, bug on bug. That's when you when you import a specific bug um, or, or it could be a toad or something that consumes the injurious insect that you are trying to eliminate. White agriculturalists, did they see the EC generation as a threat to their business? Yes, white agriculturalists um, viewed the Issei or, or Japanese immigrants. Um, they viewed them as a threat to their business and the larger environment. Uh, they perceived them as competitors in industries such as floriculture, horticulture, um, fishing. Um, so all of those all of those aspects of, of agriculture, they viewed them as economic competitors. Um, and so they would, you know, um, oftentimes accuse of Japanese fishermen of violating, um, you know, um, health ordinances where they would be um, seining um, fish by the sewer, for example. And so these white fishermen would then... Um, bring the issue to court. And what would happen is that these Japanese fishermen found themselves um, prosecuted, um, you know, um, fined and or sent to jail um, as a result. Um, you know, that's what the, um, the, the newspapers, that's what they revealed is that these um, happen quite frequently, these accusations of, of, you know, unhygienic, um, um, uh, fishing practices. Now, you talked about the canker bacteria and the spread. Who was this first introduced and what was the problems associated with this? Uh, yes, yes. I already talked a bit about it. Um, as I mentioned, it was initially discovered in 1904 in the New York Bronx Zoological Park. Uh, and it um, pretty much infected, as I mentioned before, it pretty much infected every single tree, um, every single native uh, chestnut in throughout the U.S., um, especially in along the East Coast. So, I mean, even as I was doing archival research at the, for example, um, in Philadelphia and then later on in Delaware, you know, I was told that um, there was uh, there there were some uh, chestnut trees at the Hagley Museum um, at the Hagley Museum in Delaware, and one I don't recall one of the staff told me said to me you know we have uh, a chestnut tree on our property, but it is infected by chestnut blight, um, and so it it just shows how pervasive how widespread um, chestnut blight is and still persists to this day. Um, where you um, 
you you cannot you you can no longer use um, chestnut trees for things such as food. Um, you cannot use it to make furniture, um, and it also invokes this longer um, this longer fear of you know where where white settlers you know they started. I argue in the book that they started to take over. Um, they started to settle the land and displace um, American Indians. Uh, and so the argument that I make is that this process of displacement included um, taking on the identity um, as a part of the native environment by displacing American Indians. Um, what they did was that they then took on the mantle of of nativism and whenever um, diseases such as chestnut blight would then um, would then start to spread, um, the accusation was that these um, Japanese agriculturalists and Japanese immigrants more generally um, that they are a threat to the native uh, the native the white native environment. Chapter four, it's entitled "Contagious Yellow Peril." Disease bodies and the threat of the little brown men. Tell us more. Well, uh, Japanese immigrants, they were excluded from most occupations, especially that of skilled labor, um, except those occupations related to agriculture. So when they entered labor intensive agriculture, um, you know, things they sold a great deal of celery, asparagus, and strawberries. These are just some examples. Um, they entered them because very few farmers cultivated those kinds of crops um, that required them to labor very close to the ground. So, for example, um, you'll have, um, you know, white farmers in Santa Clara Valley who tended to cultivate pears and other fruit orchards, um, and few Japanese immigrants went into that. Um, they they mostly focused, again, like I said, on labor-intensive agriculture that physically brought them to the ground, closer to the ground. Um, there was this belief that um, that their anatomy, their bodies, um, which were already, you know, they were already shorter, um, that the, it, it's uniquely suited them to labor-intensive agriculture. Um, and, you know, we could make biological arguments about that as well, um, that that's their, their biology, you know, biology is destiny. Um, and on top of that, um, there were fears that, uh, that these Japanese gardeners and farmers, uh, that they were taking over the land. Um, and so what happened was that there were a number of alien land laws that were passed, the first being 1913 in California, but they were eventually, um, you know, they were eventually passed in seven other states um, in the early 20th century. Uh, and so as a result, you have Japanese immigrants going into fishing and farming, you know, gardening, um, what I call urban horticulture, um, on you know, and and as a result as well, persecution by the um, by health officials in in Los Angeles. Now you talk about hookworms in the book. 
did you find discrimination there in terms of the hookworm situation? Yes, uh, the hookworm um, was a parasitic infection um, and also viewed as, as an attack. You could argue that it's a, it was an attack on the native um, environment. Uh, an attack on white Americans, um, that this posed a public health menace to white Americans. And there's this belief that Asians were um, carriers of hookworm, that they carried this disease. Of of course, you know, there are beliefs that they carried bubonic plague and, um, you know, Asiatic cholera and, and um, you know, a whole, whole host of diseases all, all came from, originated in Asia. Um, but these uh, hookworm is very interesting because there's this um, belief that Asians coming from Mexico and the Philippines that they carried hookworm. Um, you know, with you know, health officials made the argument that um, well, those countries they had high rates of hookworm infestations. So you have Asians coming along the U.S.-Mexico border, and there there were these. Um, these, you know, very real fears that they were carrying hookworm across the border and then spreading them all, all throughout the U.S. You talk about typhoid, and I thought this story about the man believing he caught it from a block of ice was interesting. And how did the local officials deal with the typhoid in regards to the Japanese Americans? Um, well, I didn't, I didn't really look at those exact sources, but I do know based on DeMoto's oral history, um, that there was a chrysanthemum grower who, um, worked with his father, um, who had nursed his own son who contracted typhoid fever and offered care, offered to care for DeMoto because, you know, he had the experience of nursing his own son back to health. Um, and then in the book, there's also another uh, one case of typhoid fever. Um, this, this happened in 1911, Boyle Heights, uh, where they suspected um, Japanese food handlers of spreading the disease. So this is a, a common accusation that they would spread diseases such as typhoid fever. Um, but, you know, no proof appeared to be provided. So... Um, so it's difficult to say. You know, uh, there was an article you wrote about uh, consuming Japanese products and the poisoning. Tell us about that. Uh, yes, amoebic poisoning. So there was an article in the Grizzly Bear. Um, it was it was a really um, it was a really surprising article in the sense that when I came across it. Um, you know, here was this man um, from San Francisco who claimed that in 1913 that he was in Spokane, Washington, uh, and he had consumed uh, strawberries or lettuce or something like that, and as a result contracted amoebic poisoning. Um, and in, in this article, he claimed that it was caused by eating produce handled by quote-unquote orientals. So um, he did eventually regain his health, but he had to have surgery um, where there was an opening made in his stomach, according to this article. Um, so the lesson here, the, the message being sent by the grizzly bear, 
you know, this California publication is that um, consuming Japanese produce, it can lead to disease and even death. So beware. Tell us about the, the termites and the migration of the termites. What was going on there? Well, um, it's been in um, the oriental termite has been in Hawaii since um, about the mid 19th century, perhaps by the 1860s. And it is considered to be the most economically important pest across the Hawaiian islands. And it was very likely shipped on um, wood shipments. Um, and it initially, it, it's, it was initially um, sent, you know, actually accidentally introduced to Oahu, but it eventually made its way across, you know, the, the different island chains uh, of Hawaii, you know, Kauai, Lanai, Molokai. And its origins are believed to be from uh, what was then Formosa or now Taiwan, or it could have come from South China. Um, and this happened likely during the sandalwood trade uh, between the Hawaiian kingdom and China. Um, but there were debates about when uh, the Formosan or the Oriental termite, when did it arrive in the continental U.S.? And so my book kind of touches upon this debate, you know, did it arrive earlier, you know, in the early 20th century, did it arrive um, after, um, but we do know for sure that it eventually arrived, um, possibly after World War II um, in the 1940s and 1950s. And it's similar to other Asian biological invasions. You know, we, like I mentioned before, um, chestnut blight, San Jose scale, et cetera, uh, because its origins are believed to be from East Asia. And the oriental termite, um, you know, I argue that its spread um, was enabled by the fact that, um, you know, we have two different um, colonized territories. Um, by 1895, Japan had colonized Formosa, um, transforming its agricultural economy into um, monoculture agriculture. Um, and it's very similar to how the U.S. transformed um, Hawaiian agriculture, uh, you know, focusing on things like um, sugar, coffee, um, pineapples. So those are all, um, I argue, as a result of colonization, um, which then in turn enable, further enables the spread of, of you know, injurious insects and plant diseases, um, including the oriental termite. January 8, 1919, Japanese beetle. How did it travel to the East Coast? What, what did you find there? Well, the West, the Northeast actually traded extensively with West Coast nurseries. And I find it very interesting. I found it very interesting that Domoto, Domoto nurseries, um, they would import, um, they would import plants from Japan and then they would then send it to all these different nurseries around the country. Uh, but especially those in the Northeast, including um, Dreer Nursery, um, which, you know, um, 
is believed to be the the nursery uh, that accidentally imported the Japanese beetle. And so one thing that I noticed, um, you know, during my time in Philadelphia is that on any given day, you could easily walk past um, Japanese plants um, just by looking at, and especially also by looking at the archives. The archives mentioned that there were a whole host of plants, um, the Japanese pagoda tree, the sawada cypress of Japan. And these were in places that were very, very um, prominent. You know, the Arboretum, Rittenhouse Square, um, the University of Pennsylvania Botanical Garden. So these are really, really major um, areas. And so Drear Nursery in the Riverton area, it was considered to be one of the largest nurseries. And they sold a number of Japanese plants. So the claim uh, by Charles Marlatt um, was that Dreer imported the Japanese beetle in the early 20th century. And so um, the then you know, president of Dreer Nursery, um, Jacob David Isley, he acknowledged that while Dreer imported a whole host of Japanese irises, um, uh, but he also believed that the dangers posed by the beetle, that that had been exaggerated. Um, so it remains inconclusive of exactly how uh, the beetle entered the U.S. Uh, but Isley's point, or Isley's argument, is that um, that it, it's it's been um, sensationalized, um, is is well taken, and that's something that I address in the conclusion of the book. Unfair treatment. Um, what were many of the leaders uh, saying about this? I think the example was in the birth certificate uh, example you talked about. Tell us about that. Oh, yes. Uh, that's a good question. So the birth registration incident and represented the rise of second generation Japanese Americans who were coming of age in the 1920s. And so what that meant is that this there was a growing Japanese, you know, quote unquote, a Japanese problem. This is a time when, you know, obviously you have fears of all kinds of problems of, you know, um, uh, of fears of all kinds of people of color coming into the U.S. And as a result, fears of race suicide, uh, especially interracial sex and marriage between Asian men and white women. George Shima, the potato king. You you talked about him. How how was he important in this story? Well, I found it interesting that he compared interracial marriage between Japanese men and you know white American girls to uh, crossbreeding potatoes, different potatoes um, that best suited the environment. So it's interesting to note how even then, you know, they're making these, clearly they're making these connections between um, the environment, you know, um, like uh, cross-beating certain plants, um, hybrids, you know, to to um, interracial marriage, interracial sex and marriage. And this is a time period also when you have um, the end of Japanese picture brides, with the passage of the Ladies' Agreement in 1921. 
And so what that meant is that who will who will these Japanese and Japanese American men, who will they end up marrying without, you know, because there are no longer picture brides available to them. Did California have an active eugenic movement? Yes. Um, in fact, um, the argument could be made that um, California had the most active uh, eugenics movement um, more than any any other place in the nation. Uh, more sterilizations occurred in California. Um, and this, this was documented by Alexandra Mina Stern in, in Eugenic Nation, um, where she, she um, has um, pretty powerfully given evidence to these claims. Tell us about David Fairchild. He was a complex figure. Um, and, you know, Charles Marla, again, was sort of like his a sharp contrast to him, because unlike Charles Marla, he was very welcoming to um, plant immigrants. In fact, he was the plant explorer who introduced uh, a wide variety of crops into the U.S. And these include things like the soybean, bamboo, as well as the Japanese cherry trees. So that's what he's known for. Yet at the other, on the other hand, he was also a eugenicist. He was active in the American Breeders Association, the first eugenic organization in the country. Uh, and so Fairchild is a perfect example of how, you know, his vision, how it extended into the world of plants and animals, um, that you could be supposedly, uh, you know, this cosmopolitan liberal, and yet at the same time um, hold some very, you know, very eugenicist ideologies. World War II, December 15, 1941. Tell us about the incident in Washington, D.C. Yes. Um, there were rumors that were floating around that the Japanese cherry trees along the tidal basin had been attacked, um, that vandals had cut them down. Um, in fact, um, a few trees had been cut down. I think they were there were a small number. Um, and yet when, you know, and I did not know this until the very end stages of the book manuscript that I discovered um, by viewing a, a photograph um, that I had not seen before um, until the very final stages of the book, um, that there was one tree that had the words carved into it, to hell with those Japanese, carved into the trunk. Um, and it just demonstrates how decades, decades um, of anti-Asian racism, how that manifests in, in hatred of, of plants as well as insects. You, you gave the example of Demoto. What happened to him after the attack on Pearl Harbor? Well, um, he he went to the Amach Relocation Center, um, so he was incarcerated there. Um, sadly, his father and his uncle um, died while incarcerated in camp. Um, 
But after he left, um, he left the Amach Relocation Center um, and went to um, went to work at a greenhouse in Illinois because he he had previously gone to school at the University of Illinois and um, you know had a great deal of experience with camellias. After the war, he went he returned to um, California to Hayward and basically just um, ran his nursery, continued running his nursery. Um, resumed his breeding projects, um, remained active in the California um, Horticultural Society, and never really closed his nursery. Um, he lived there until he died. Why were there no vegetables allowed to be sold without testing? That that was interesting. <laughs> Right. Um, it's it's just it's always a surprise what archives reveal. Um, there was this fear that they contained poisonous insecticides, that Japanese growers were in fact intentionally poisoning, <laughs> poisoning, uh, infecting their produce with all kinds of excessive use of sprays on celery and that sort of thing and apples. Um, LA health officials they they feared this. They feared that. Japanese gardeners that they were doing this intentionally, um, and and this accusation became you know it started around the 1920s, but the accusations became increasingly strident, um, especially during the start of World War II. Tuberculosis rates, they were not higher than the general populations, but what was the lived experience of many Japanese Americans with that? Yes. Um, well, we have the Kudo family. The Kudo family, um, they are a family um, from Peru. They actually lived in Peru, um, a Japanese Peruvian family um, who were incarcerated in Crystal City, Texas um, during World War II. Um, and the wife, Shigemi, um, died of advanced tuberculosis um, during, during her incarceration. Um, you know, she ended up following her, her husband, her family, um, Suketsuni, to the U.S. because he was arrested in 1942 in Peru. And what happened is that after the discovery that she had um, fairly advanced tuberculosis, um, she could not obtain the medicine that was needed to then um, cure her. Um, and so it, it's a very, it's a very sad story of how she repeatedly wrote letters to officials um, desperately trying to obtain this medicine while incarcerated, um, but ended up dying um, still. After people read your book, what is the message you would like the reader to leave with? Hopefully, they will leave with the message that um, Japanese Americans, that Asian Americans, they shape the environment, um, that they made contributions. Um, and I'm not talking about the negative, you know, the negative aspects, like I mentioned before, that all these biological invasions still persist in the U.S., and yet, you know, we have, for example, Toichi Gamoto, the Japanese American nurseryman who um, bred, you know, he bred camellias and um, which are still being cultivated today. And 
um, they planted um, all kinds of, you know, not only Japanese cherry trees, but they planted all kinds of ornamentals um, that still persist um, across the U.S. So they shaped the environment um, and they made contributions, certainly it's also to environmental history. But I also wanted people to question um, mainstream conservation movements um, that when, when there's this attempt to preserve native species, uh, I want to raise questions of, well, what does that mean? What constitutes um, a native species? How long must a plant persist in the U.S. in order to finally become native? So I have all these questions. And hopefully my readers will begin to think about how, um, if you want to understand um, racial formations, if you want to understand race, you have to look at the more than human worlds. If you want to understand the environment, you need to think about racial formations. You need to think about race because rarely do we see that these two go hand in hand. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. What is the next project you're going to be working on? Well, I'm currently working on um, recent Asian biological invasions, uh, the Asian giant hornet, which talks about the Asian giant hornet, the spotted lantern fly, and the Joro spider, all presumably from East Asia. Um, the Asian the Asian giant hornet has gotten in the media more recently. It's be it's dubbed the Asian murder hornet. And so I talk about how, well, that's, that's a racist epithet um, because you can compare that to the, um, to the Africanized killer bees. So these are um, racist epithets that we hurl against um, fearful, fearful invasions. Um, in terms of other projects, I'm very interested in Asian Americans and intelligence tests in the first half of the 20th century. And I'm especially interested in how, um, uh, through this, through what I call relational racial formations, how by comparing Asian Americans to, for example, to African Americans, how is it that Asian Americans then became this model minority um, with respect to intelligence tests? Intelligence tests being uh, the science that in fact shaped this identity of them as model minorities. Um, by comparing them to um, African-Americans, um, how, that, how that happened. Um, and I'm also interested in exploring um, how eugenics, right? How did, that, how did that play into these intelligence tests? Um, how did they, how did eugenic ideology, how did it impact Asian Americans differently? Uh, because I'm thinking that it, it's more about um, emphasizing the intelligence of Asian Americans uh, versus sterilization, right? So sterilization affected, we could argue it affected primarily other people of color, including um, Latinos in California. Um, so how did that affect Asian Americans differently? So that's what I ha have for now in terms of future projects. Well, we'll be looking forward to those. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you.